more about the kind of God that we worship because it's all too easy to get a distorted view of God. And the prophets were sent along to remind people of how God felt and what kind of God he was anyway. Second, calling people back to what we call the great agreement, the covenant between God and his people. And calling them back and saying, look, you're falling down here. God keeps his promises all the time. He fulfills his covenant. But your side of the covenant, we let him down again and again. And so the prophets were necessary to keep on bringing people back to where they ought to have been. And then third, the future of creation. Their third main uh, a topic was gradually revealing God's plans for the future. That's the only one, really, that we tend to think of when we think of prophets nowadays. We think of Nostradamus or something like that, and uh, uh, talking about what's going to happen in a few years' time or at the end of the world or whatever. That was one part of the prophet's job. But it was only one part. And uh, as we'll see, these three prophets that we're going to talk about this evening had a specific and definite uh, role within a particular crisis period in Israelite history. We also talked a little bit about how biblical prophecy developed. We said that it was a tradition of foretelling in the Near East, uh, long before the, Israel was a nation. And when Israel became a nation, um, there were prophets. There were people who, right from the start who, who heard from God. And uh, people argue about who the first prophet in the Bible was. Was it Enoch? Was it Abraham? Was it Samuel? It doesn't really matter. There are no prizes for being first. But certainly from the very early days onward, there were people in Israelite history with whom it was recognized God had communicated so that they could communicate with people for him. And so eventually you find schools of prophets coming up. And when Elijah and Elisha were ministering in a name when the kings didn't really want to listen too much to what God was saying, young men started to gather around them the sons of the prophets. And they weren't literally sons of the prophets, but people who joined a, a school. And there were just four of them in Elijah's day, which he started, and Elisha carried them. And uh, out of that came a, a, a tradition of lots and lots of prophets being around in Israel. Um, I'm not sure that all of the people who went through the schools of the prophets ended up as prophets, proved to have that gift. I used to be in charge of training for an organisation called British Youth for Christ, and they, they put me in charge of a training centre in Swaffham in Norfolk, which is quite interesting considering I lived in London at the time. But uh, it was interesting running that thing and seeing all these people coming through who thought they wanted to be youth workers, thought they wanted to work in schools for Youth for Christ. It was good for all of them. But when I look back on the faces I can remember from those days, some of them made it in ministry, some of them didn't. But it was good to have them all around anyway. And I guess that was kind of the feel with the schools of prophets. Some of them became full-time practicing prophets because that was what God had for them. Others were just there as a kind of support to that whole thing and to help the group continue to flourish. But one way or another, it all happened. And then eventually, as we saw last time, there were writing prophets, people who wrote it down. And they start in about the 8th century. That's when writing becomes quite, quite uh, um, widespread in Israel. And somebody has the idea, these things ought to be recorded. Some of these things are important in the future. And so at that time, God uh, raises up men who've got something to say that goes down through the centuries. And we looked at uh, the, that first group of prophets last time. The, the rest of the story, well, we'll come to that one. We're not going to go through the whole thing tonight. But this is where we are anyway. We're in the period of the writing prophets. And tonight we've moved on to the 8th century to the 7th century before Jesus. And I'll just try to, to bring that alive a little bit more tonight. Because I was reading... Um, 
a good book on, on the prophets earlier on this week, and the, the writer made the point, I think a lot of the people I've talked to, the Christians, who can't stand the prophets, can't stand the prophets or find them boring because they don't understand the context they came out of. They don't understand the society they're writing for. And if you get that, if that comes alive, if you understand the history, then wow, say things all over the place that you can parallel with what's happening now with our own day. And it really comes alive in that context. So we'll try to talk a little bit about that. We looked at the history a bit last week, you remember, how um, from the start of the monarchy and King David, around about 1000 BC, uh, you have the kingdom going on and then splitting into two when uh, Jeroboam takes the northern tribes away from the southern tribes. It doesn't end too well. 722, the ten tribes are taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and that's the end of the story where they're concerned. But Judah, the southern bit, uh, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, uh, that continues for quite a bit longer until 586 BC, and at that point of course they go into exile in Babylon. So you've got these different periods of history and after that you think they've gone too but they haven't because God has already promised that 70 years later they'll be back home again. And so after the exile they come back and they start rebuilding the, the temple and the city walls and that's another period. So we've got basically the period of the two kingdoms, the period of disaster coming and the period after the exile. And I think that when you look at that, it helps you put the minor prophets into place. But let's say there are 12 minor prophets, and the Jews simply call them the 12. And remembering 12 things is incredibly difficult. Three is about the most that most people can manage. I once preached a sermon with five points, never again. <laughs> Too many things for people to remember and take away with them. But so 12 is quite difficult, and I, I find it's easier to remember who's who by dividing them into four groups of three. Anyhow, uh, there are two great prophets around at this point, major prophets, so-called, because they wrote a lot. Um, there's Isaiah and there's Jeremiah. Is it, well, there's Ezekiel and Daniel as well. They're not really in the period we're talking about tonight. And those four major prophets overlap with the minor prophets. The the, but if you think about those three periods, the two-kingdom period, the disaster-coming period, after the exile period, well, Jeremiah is writing during the exile and before it as well. He starts the of King Josiah and goes on after the exile for a bit. Ezekiel and Daniel are ex exilic prophets. Isaiah seems to go on all the way through. And of course, as I said last time, I've divided that line into three because there are three distinct phases in Isaiah's prophecy. And did he write it all himself? Was there an Isaiah school that continued writing him after him? Um, the comment I always like about that one is Alan's Tears. He wrote a brilliant commentary on Isaiah. And he said, if you get to heaven and you find me in a corner arguing fiercely with three men, you'll know I was wrong about Isaiah. <laughs> so was it three men? Was it one man? I don't know. But anyhow, um, uh, the, the Isaiah is responsible for the, the, the vision that, uh, that uh, informs that whole book. So, thinking about those three periods, the two kingdoms, the disaster coming period, after the exile period, here are the twelve. How do they fit in? Well, conveniently, there are three that fit into the two kingdom period. <laughs> and here are the three that they looked at, after, looked at last time. Amos, the herdsman from Tekoa, south of Jerusalem, who was sent right to the north to talk to the kingdom of Samaria uh, about what uh, God thought about it. Hosea, who's given the impossible job of marrying a woman who was going to let him down and break his heart. And uh, Micah as well. Another uh, person who uh, came to the big city and ministered on a very different level. Three men who were given a very different job, but nonetheless um, uh, were all part of the whole thing alongside Isaiah. Then what we're doing tonight is looking at these three. 
Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. As I mentioned this morning, all three of them seem to have prophesied within the same 20-year period. So we're talking about the 7th century, but actually it's in one crisis part of it that all three of these people seem to have done their best work. There are three more after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and we'll get to them eventually. And there are three more that we really can't date at the moment. If we find out a definite date for these three, then my whole scheme falls apart. But hey, at the moment, nobody knows when these books were written, Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah. So they're the date uncertain ones. And I think God has a purpose in making the date a bit uncertain for us, because what each of those what the uh, prophet says has a value that's quite different from its historical background. You don't need to know much about the history to understand those prophets, but we'll get to them. As I say, tonight we're here. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. So let's have a look at how they fit in. It's this period here uh, when disaster is coming, the 7th century AD. And uh, I'll just remind you of what has been said before, in the hundred years before, when uh, uh, Micah, Amos, and Hosea were around. We said right at the end last, last time that they talked to people about, first of all, taking God seriously. The fact that God is the God of the whole world, and he judges everybody, not just the people that you think are evil, but you too. He's got no rival. There's no fruitful life apart from him. That means that God's people have to live out the covenant in real life. It's no good just paying lip service to God. If you really belong to him, then you will live the way he wants you to. And third, you have to understand God's mercy. Because God is merciful to those who repent. You may have messed up so far, but doom is not inevitable. And God forgives people. Fourth, someone's coming who's going to change everything. One of these days, God's ultimate servant will appear. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Uh, hence uh, one of those prophets and uh, uh, he's going to rule his people as no other ruler that Israel has ever seen before and in fifth what God really wants is a relationship with his redeemed people of unbroken confiding love and that's where all his plans are heading now in the seventh century people obviously knew this stuff it had been said already it had been preserved in writing but God has to take them on a bit further because political events have changed and life is becoming a bit more on a knife edge. What was it uh, like in the 7th century? That is a 7th century uh, house um, from a museum in Jerusalem, but it's not very helpful. It could be a 9th century house or 8th century. The lifestyle didn't change that much in those 200 years. And uh, you have to look a bit deeper if you want to find out what it really was like. The first thing you can say about the 7th century, anyhow, was Jerusalem was crowded. <laughs> it was a place where the city was growing. This is Hezekiah's Jerusalem. Remember, Hezekiah was on the throne when we left it last time. And uh, Hezekiah, in his day, uh, found loads and loads of people crowding into Jerusalem. Why was that? Well, it was because the northern tribes had gone into captivity. And although many of them were hauled off to places that they never came back from, some of them became as refugees south of the border. There were also people in the Philistine cities who came to Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day because Philistia was rising again. It was becoming a rival to Judah uh, once more. And people, Jews who lived by the coast and couldn't live there any longer, crowded into Jerusalem too. So do you see that big orange bulge on the side of Jerusalem there? It's terrible colours, but you can just about see it there, I think. Um, that was the new bit that Hezekiah had to build for the people who were coming out of the city. As you can see, it swelled, swelled the city massively. And of course, when the end eventually came and the Babylonians attacked, that was the first bit to get destroyed. 
And we know from the ruins around Jerusalem that uh, the people who lived in that area um, have many defences and uh, uh, only the people who managed to get into the small, narrow, upright bit of the city that you see the green bit, the yellow bit, the red bit, um, they were the ones who were saved. But Jerusalem was crowded. There were something like between 8,000 and 25,000 people living in, in Jerusalem in, in those days. Now, that is a major city. That is a lot of people. Lots of refugees came from the north, as I've said, and from Philistia. There were also people who were deported there because the Assyrians were in charge of the whole region. We'll talk more about them in a moment. And uh, they were deporting people from one part of the empire to another. And so suddenly all sorts of people were living around who were not Jews. And they brought their own customs with them and built shrines to their own gods. And the whole thing was becoming very, very multicultural. But you could also say that Jerusalem, with all of these problems, was becoming a wealthy, modern and successful city too. Living standards had been rising steadily. For one thing, there was town planning going on. It's in the 7th century that you find houses being built in streets and groups together. There's a bit of planning about what's going on. You find water tunnels and storage facilities for grain and things like that. And so it's possible for people to live on a more uh, reliable level. You're not going to run out of food very quickly, unless, of course, you're besieged. You're not going to run out of water because you keep it stored. And so living standards went up. Industry flourished. You know that uh, oil, grain and wine were exported from Israel to other places. Pottery became a, 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 um, a major industry as well. And uh, that too was exported. Uh, trade became a bigger factor than it ever had been before. We weren't just producing things now for Israelite inhabitants. You were selling them abroad and making money through them. Exporting through the, the Tyrian uh, ports, through Ashkelon, the Philistine port. And because... The roads leading to the port were used by people who had something to sell, so you could tax them as well. And so keeping control of those roads meant that you got wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And Israel is now in a very strategic position if you want to get to the Mediterranean and uh, go and sell, sell things around the place. So it was becoming a very wealthy place. Writing was spreading. Started in the previous century, as we said, and uh, you, we've got all sorts of examples of it. There's a thing called the Lakish Letters, some of which you'll find in the British Museum. And they're not really letters because they're written on bits of broken down jugs. <laughs> Pottery was very, very cheap in those days. And rather than using paper or papyrus or anything like that, what you would use would be a jug on which you could scratch, a bit of pottery on which you could scratch something. And the Lakish letters are a whole series of straka, as they're called, bits of pot pottery, shards of pottery, on which letters have been written, which have been sent to the commander of the garrison at Lakish, uh, not far from, from Jerusalem. And it's a fascinating collection. In the very first of those letters, the guy who's writing it is complaining to the, the, the commander at Lakish that he's writing to, I'm not illiterate, I read the letter you sent me. And so we know that writing was becoming quite popular and people who weren't necessarily scholars or courtiers or whatever were able to communicate in writing and so learn more than they ever had done before. And in all of this, there was a tremendous amount of religious diversity going on. Because to keep the country stable, to keep this prosperity going, the kings had to be very, very careful how they dealt with the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And that meant that you had to allow foreigners to do a little bit more than they'd ever done in the country before. 
So you find that uh, there are all sorts of superstitions that start to creep into life in, in Israel, in Judea. And uh, altars are built to foreign gods. Israelites start worshipping the host of heaven on their own uh, flat roofs and things like that. High places start worshipping not just the God that the Israelites have always worshipped, but other local gods as well. Sometimes historians have said, well, you know, it's no wonder kings allowed this to happen because, well, you know, they were vassals of the Assyrian Empire. So obviously they worship Assyrian gods. The problem with that is when you look at the gods that actually were worshipped, they weren't the Assyrian ones. The Assyrians didn't force people to worship their gods. No, it's the local gods, the ones of the Canaanites and the Philistines and the others around them. And so obviously it was a matter of choice. It wasn't politically forced upon them. It was a case of getting closer to the, to the, the people of Tyre and the people of uh, Phoenician background, the Philistines, and, and feeling a little bit that to be fashionable, to be modern, you had to copy them. And that includes perhaps praying to their gods as well. Couldn't do any harm anyway because things were in a terrible situation. Here are one or two pictures just for, to show you what was going on. Here are some columns that were just discovered a few years ago um, on the edge of Jerusalem showing just how ornate some people's houses were. Those are columns that had big pillars going down from the ground and clearly there's a lot of uh, architecture, a lot of... Uh, fantastic carving going on. Uh, here's another bit of uh, uh, the balusters for the windows. And uh, we've just begun to realise over the last few years how much wealth and how much style there was in Jerusalem in those days. And those things are things you need to realise when you're reading uh, Nahum, Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Because they're writing against a culture which was materially just as well off as we are. And the same thing was happening in the 7th century that is happening now, the rich were getting richer and richer and richer, and the poor were losing out. And the things that Amos had complained about a hundred years before, they were just accelerating and getting worse under these kings. And the whole thing was happening against the backdrop of, oh, lots of wealth. I mean, here's, here's some pottery that obviously manufactured pottery in one of the factories that they had. But at the same time, political instability, it was all precariously balanced. The Assyrians were a pretty rough lot. <laughs> and they were in charge of the region, pretty much, uh, in, at the time we were speaking about. Simon Anglin is perhaps the, the leading British military historian at the moment. And he's a kind of fascinated horror as a, a military man himself with the way the Assyrians used to run things. And he says in, in one of his books about the uh, history of war, the Assyrians created the world's first great army and the world's first great empire. This was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer unadulterated terror. It was Assyrian policy always to demand that exams be made of those who resisted them. This included deportations of entire peoples and horrific physical punishments. What kind of physical punishments? Well, here are the words of Assur Narsipal, who admittedly was, was 100 years before, but he said the style. And people like Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal and, and Esarhaddon, the, the Assyrian leaders uh, of the 7th century, were very much following in, in his footsteps. I built a pillar over against his gate, and I flayed all the chief men. And I covered the pillar with pair of skins. <clears throat> some I impaled on the pillar on stakes. Many captives I burned with fire. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers. From others I cut off their noses, their ears. Of many I put out the eyes. <laughs> nice guy. And uh, Will Durant, in his, his uh, history of, of, of the world, basically, um, uh, says this about the Assyrians. A captured city was usually plundered and burnt to the ground. 
Soldiers were rewarded for every severed head they brought in from the field, so that the aftermath of a victory generally witnessed the wholesale decapitation of fallen foes. And uh, it was a bit like uh, uh, the Second World War, where pictures were taken by guards of what went on in the concentration camp, the, the desolation of cities. Scribes stood by to count the number of prisoners taken and killed. It was all detailed, just like those records from Auschwitz and, uh, and Treblinka and places like that. The nobles among the defeated were given more special treatment. Their ears, ears, hands and feet were sliced off, or they were thrown from high towers, or and their children were beheaded, or flayed alive, or roasted over a slow fire. And those are the people with whom the Israelites, for the first time in history, had to do. The trouble was, they'd come up against a superpower before, and there was an uneasy balance between the Assyrian Empire, up, at, up in the purple bit there, which is spreading all over the place, and the old empire of Egypt down to the bottom. And as you can see, by the time this map is drawn towards the end of the 7th century, Egypt has virtually lost it. The Assyrians have conquered most of uh, Egypt right following the course of the Nile. And, of course, that's the only place in Egypt where you can actually build anything and have a civilization. And so the Egyptian empire was being forced back and back and back. And that's why in these three prophets you sometimes read about the Ethiopians. <laughs> because that's pretty much what the Egyptians had become. They'd been pushed so far south into the land of Kush and the land of Ethiopia. That was it. Of course, the 26th dynasty of pharaohs made a, a, a bid in the middle of the 7th century to re-establish themselves against Assyria. And nobody quite knew how it was going to go. And so the, uh, one of the problems for Israelite kings was working out where they stood in the middle of all of this. Who did they pay tribute to, Egypt or Assyria? And uh, that uh, uh, yellow dot there is Jerusalem, clearly in the middle of the whole problem. And a third power was just about to rise to really complicate the whole thing. Just as Assyria had the whole place sewn up, then out of the middle of their empire came a group that they'd subdued a long time before who wanted to be the next world empire, and that was the Babylonians. And the, the, this map shows how it went. I won't tell you all about it, but basically the Babylonians started to take over their own cities and then moved into the Assyrian cities. And the whole thing came to a conclusion in 605 in a battle at a place called Carchemish in the north. And there the Assyrians and what was left of the Egyptians got together to oppose this new force, force and they were massively, massively defeated. Nebuchadnezzar, the young king of Babylon, just won the whole thing. As a result, he was able to march south immediately after that to Jerusalem and take away from Jerusalem Daniel, his friends, and take him back to Babylon. Later on, he came back and took Ezekiel and some others away. And later on, the Babylonians came in 586 BC and destroyed the whole city. Who were the kings in these days? They had different ideas about how to save the country in the midst of the crisis that was going on. You remember seeing this one uh, last time, uh, the, the, the king of the north on the right there and the kings of the south in the preceding century, and we ended up with Hezekiah on the throne. Well, what happened after Hezekiah? His son, Manasseh, ruled for 55 years, and in a precarious situation like that, he did pretty well. The trouble was, Manasseh is remembered by the Bible as one of the most evil kings Israel ever had, because he was a compromiser. And when he died, his son took over and carried on the same kind of routine, he lasted for just two years before he was assassinated by his own men. After that, Josiah, his son, came to the throne. And Josiah was completely different from his father and his grandfather. And he was the one who turned everything around just for a while. Then he died in battle. 
he decided to stop Pharaoh Nicol uh, going back up to join up with, uh, with, with uh, what was left of Assyria and fight Babylon one more time. And that's the point where Jehoiah lost his life. But that's another story. His son Jehoahaz had the throne after him. And uh, our prophets probably write, are writing within the reign of Josiah with the background of Manasseh's wickedness, Amon's continuing wickedness, and Josiah's attempt to change things. What did the kings think? What were their ideas? Well, Manasseh's idea was basically this. You can't beat the Assyrians. We need peace and prosperity. Whatever the religious people say, you have to be realistic. So we encourage Tyrian worship, so what? We allow people to worship foreign gods. So we bring foreigners into the country. That's okay, provided you can keep the standard of living going. We've got to make compromises. You can't be right. I used to be chaplain in a, a school in Exeter. Um, and uh, as part of that, as part of the, the heads of house committee. And all the house heads would sit around uh, once a week. It was the most boring meeting I ever went to, and they'd talk about what we were going to do with the school. It was boring because we never actually got to do anything with the school. The headmaster had made up his mind before he even got there. But I remember one day when my name got mentioned, and um, uh, he was talking about something they were going to do, which was incredibly devious, and he said, well, the chaplain will disagree with this because it's not exactly biblical, but um, sometimes you just have to be realistic about life. And I coughed and spluttered at my point, but, you know, he was determined to do it. It was going to go that way. And that was his attitude. Sometimes it's good to be religious. I, this is a Christian school. We have Christians' assemblies as a chapel. We, we pay a chaplain every week. And uh, we're a Christian school. But sometimes you can be too Christian. <laughs> you can be too moral. You can do all the right things. And you can't do that all the time. That was basically Manasseh. And Eamon's attitude was, well, whatever Dad said. He just carried the same thing going on and lasted for two years. Josiah, on the other hand, his basic philosophy was, let's put God first. And you know the story of Josiah and how he uh, instigated a religious reformation in the country such as had never seen, been seen before. If we do what he told us years ago, says Josiah, this country can be rescued at least for a while. You remember him finding the book of the law in the temple of the Lord and uh, going to the prophetess Huldah and saying, look, what is God saying to us now? And they're saying, well, the master's going to come on the country. The rot has set in far too much. But God honours the way you're thinking. And so it's not going to happen in your day. And the country will last for a while at least. And then Jehoahaz gets on the throne after Josiah's dead. And uh, basically, Josiah, and Jehoahaz lasted for a month. Or was it three months? I think it was three months, actually. And he was deposed by the Pharaoh who didn't like him. And so I've got to put him down as saying, I don't think the Egyptians liked him very much. But he didn't actually add anything to it. So you have these two tendencies in the 7th century. Those who say, let's be as much like the people around us as we can be. And then at least we'll have prosperity. We'll have some kind of a hope. And in the middle of this, you get three prophets writing. First of all, there's Nahum. And Nahum, I think, is dealing with the crisis of control. Who's in charge? Because what seems to be happening is that Assyria is right in charge of everything, as far as Nahum can see. Is it going to be that way forever? Does God just allow evil to flourish? And the book of Nahum says, no, judgment is coming on the Assyrians. And at the time when Nahum wrote, it must have seemed incredible when he was saying things like this in Nahum chapter 1. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh, Nineveh being the, the capital of the Assyrians. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. And the reason he's confident about that is because of what he does with chapter 1. 
In chapter 1, he paints a picture of what God is like. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Now, when he says that God is jealous, he doesn't mean that God, mm, I wish I had the same thing that you've got. Mm. God is not covetous. God is jealous in the sense of he will not let his name be tarnished. He will not let his people be oppressed. He will not let his rights be trampled over. No, God will judge. You can't play fast and loose with God. You can't do what you like because God being jealous and God being avenging means that God will always have the last word. And so he goes on painting the picture. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And he talks about these two sides of God, the fact that people who oppose him are on a loser from the word go. But those who trust in him find he's merciful and he's a source of strength and he's a place of refuge. And because God is like that, says Nahum in chapter 1, you can see that uh, uh, judgment must come. And in chapter 2, he paints a picture of what it's like. And there's, Nahum is one of the best poets, actually, of the Old Testament. Which is a shame because people have said that Nahum is probably the least read book in the Old Testament. And sometimes when they've done surveys about which books haven't you read in the Bible, Nahum comes top of the list. It's a shame because chapter 2 is a fantastic picture of what it's going to be like in Nineveh when the trouble arrives. Uh, The panic, the disaster. And in the middle of it, you get a picture of, uh, in verse 7, it's decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. The slave girls moan doves and beat upon their breasts. And those are people who are caught up in a wicked system and thought they were safe, thought they were secure. These particular slave girls are probably priests in the temple, helping the Assyrian system to work, the political system, the religious system. And they would just say, oh, I'm just doing my job. But they're caught in in something absolutely evil. And as a result, when the the disaster comes, individual people have nowhere to go. And at the end of the chapter, he's got a picture of... um, the Assyrians as, as lions in a den. Where now is the lion's den, verse 11? The place where they fed their young. Where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I'll burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. And so in chapter 3, you get a picture of what judgment is like. Those enemies of God are serving a system that they don't understand, but which is evil and oppressive and must come to an end if there is a God in heaven. And so it does. And chapter 3 talks about what judgment is like. Nahum is actually a very helpful book to Christians who are going through persecution. It's a book that talks about waiting for God to act rather than taking vengeance yourself. In our a, a home group Bible study last week, we had two, two visitors. They are girls from a, a, um, Iran who are in Britain as refugees. And at the moment, the, the British government are not sure whether they're going to have them uh, to stay or not. And so with others, they are uh, asylum seekers and refugees. They are in a hotel just on the edge of Exeter, just sitting there every day with nothing to do, not allowed to go anywhere, not allowed to do a job, not allowed to enroll in education or anything. And they just have to wait and wait and wait. And just talking to them in our Bible study that week, they're both Christians. One of them was a Christian before she came here. The other had become a Christian through the witness of people actually in that refugee hotel. And just talking to them, you get a sense of how it feels 
when the whole world is against you. Your home government doesn't want you. It would be too dangerous to go back to the country you came from. You come in, in, in fear to the only place you can think of going, and it doesn't seem to want you either. And you're treated like dirt, and you have no way of filling your time. All you can do is wait. And the faith of those girls is being tested in a way that very few of us have ever experienced. And so Nahum has been a precious book to people who are in that kind of situation. It won't always last. God will bring good out of evil. God will vindicate the right in the end. And that's basically uh, what Nahum's talking about. The crisis of control, who's in charge, God still is. Well, Habakkuk, the second of these prophets, and we only take five minutes more, don't worry. Habakkuk, the second of these prophets, um, I think is dealing with a crisis of confusion. You see, Habakkuk can well believe what Nahum's saying, but he doesn't know why God is taking the route he is. Habakkuk is praying in faith that something will happen, that the, 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 the Assyrian uh, scourge will be taken away. And in chapter 1, you find God saying uh, in verse, verse 5, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you're told. You're going to take the Assyrians away. Yes, says God, I am raising up the Babylonians. Oh, big deal. And you see what's going on. God is replacing the bad with the worse. What is going on? And so chapter 1 of Habakkuk is about the questions that Habakkuk has to ask. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Oh Lord, you have ex- appointed them to execute judgment. Oh Lord, Rock, you have in- ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Why are you using such evil people as the Babylonians to get rid of the Assyrians? It seems all the wrong way around, Lord. And God doesn't actually give a direct answer. But that's what chapter 2 is about, the response. And if you read chapter 2, you see how Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I'll look to see what you'll say to me and what answer I'll give to this complaint. And the Lord says, write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets. The revelation awaits a appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Habakkuk, my answer is coming. It's just you can't know it yet. See, he is puffed up and his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. Those who claim they understand, those who try to sort out the situation by themselves, are not going to live. But the righteous will live by his faith. Um, and so Hezekiah, um, Habakkuk rather, gets, the, gets the message and, and, and starts to think about uh, what this actually means, to live waiting for God. Not denying the situation is there because he says right at the start i'll station myself on the ramparts he's looking at the world he's seeing what's going on he's praying about it but he's not claiming any answers or any insight into what god is doing he's simply living by faith and so we get to chapter three which colin read for us earlier on really habakkuk probably was a priest in the temple we think because what he's got there in chapter three is a psalm it's got musical instructions given with it. It's on Shigionoth. Nobody quite knows what that is, but it's something using. And it's got Sila at various points through it, which probably means pause and meditate and think about this. But it's what you get in the Psalms, isn't it? And so this psalm of Habakkuk may well have been something he wrote as part of his ongoing duties in the temple. We just don't know. But either way, ch- chapter 3, the prayer, sums up beautifully, doesn't it? What it means to hang on in a situation of crisis when you don't know the answers and all you know is God is going to bring the answer through for those who prepare to trust him in faith until it comes.
But that leaves one book, and it's the book of Zephaniah. Once again, three chapters, so very handy. Uh, all three of these are quite short and short to read. And Zephaniah uh, is living at the time when people have listened to Nahum and said, yep, this is okay, God is coming, the day of the Lord will dawn and his enemies will be thrown out. And uh, uh, we'll be part of that, and uh, we'll wait in faith until it happens. But they're not actually living the lives they should. They've been seduced by seventh-century culture. <laughs> and they're living lives which are compromised, which are half Christian or half Israelite and half pagan. And Zephaniah says, the day of the Lord is not necessarily going to be fun for you people. And so he talks in chapter 1 in uncertain no unknown terms about what it means to fall into the hands of the living God. And he talks in God's voice about uh, what he's going to do. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, he says, and against all who live in Jerusalem. What, us? Us? But we're your people. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Moloch. You're compromised. And if we, I am a God who cannot tolerate any evil, then you need to realize that you're infected and implicated in this as well. You're living in a way that involves you in evil. And it's possible for us to be like that, isn't it, too? To be in a system which prompts us in the wrong direction so that we don't even necessarily notice. I don't know about you, but um, before the post office scandal broke out in public, I was already praying sometimes, not as often as I should have done, but sometimes for people of Ennals. Because why? Because she is our sister. She's a Christian. And she was in charge of the post office operation that persecuted so many postmasters. Now, I don't know quite what her, her guilt the whole thing was. She's not spoken directly and, and clearly about it. She's going to do that, she says, at the end of the whole thing. But she's a Christian who was in charge of an organization where evil was going on. And I was really struck by the email she sent out to the, the heads of her departments before that crucial meeting when the government committee when she said I need to know that this software is safe I need to know that we're not persecuting people who, who are innocent I need to know that can you give me that assurance and of course they couldn't and she was already implicated in something that was thoroughly evil now what's her responsibility personally I make no judgment about that whatsoever I don't know but I know it's all too possible for human beings who are trying to serve God with a large part of their lives in the other part of their lives to be entangled in something that's evil and wrong. And this is part of what Zephaniah is about. The day of the Lord in chapter 1. The fact that nobody escapes it in chapter 2. That God's searching judgment looks out the secret places of the hearts of everybody. And then in chapter 3, you get this, the, the, the bit that uh, uh, I really love in, in Zephaniah. Where suddenly, towards the end of the book, after all the warnings of uh, Nahum and, uh, and Habakkuk and the first half of Zephaniah, you get a tremendous picture of what it's going to be like when the purification is complete and when God has his people gathered around him. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you 
like somebody hushing a baby that's, that's crying. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. At that time, says Zephaniah in conclusion, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I'll give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. I'll restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Colin, do you want to do the last hymn or shall we, we leave it tonight? We'll be over time. Shall we just finish it? We could sing it. Okay. Would you like to sing again? Don't answer that. Okay, fair enough.